pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the God who has created all things, from the highest mountains to the deepest valleys, even the highest heavens, and your light lights up the world. We thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but you have revealed yourself in creation itself, and you have spoken in your word, and most of all, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Speak to us now through the preaching of your word, speak to our hearts, and work your word deep within us. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text tonight, Daniel chapter 2. In the sermon I'll be covering verses 1 through 23, but I'll also read verse 24 as well. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, And the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the kings tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and furious, very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. 
And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Tonight, as we come to the second chapter of Daniel, the main theme of our passage is mystery. I find there are two common responses to mystery. Perhaps you're the kind of person who enjoys a good mystery. In a mystery novel or a movie, you enjoy the mystery, and you enjoy seeing it slowly being uncovered by the detective. Of course, in these Stories, you have the comfort of knowing the mystery will be solved by the end of the novel. For many others, mystery is not so enjoyable. In fact, many find unresolved mystery to be simply unbearable. They need the mystery to be revealed, to be uncovered. They cannot rest until the mystery is solved. Of course, this is what drives those detectives in our mystery stories. In the Christian faith, there are at least two kinds of mystery. First, there are those things that were mysteries in the past, but now have been revealed. Many of these connected with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the primary mysteries of this kind spoken of in the New Testament is the full inclusion of the Gentiles. Of course, it had been spoken of partially revealed in the Old Testament, but now it's so clearly and fully revealed in the New Second, there are those doctrines connected with the very nature of our great and incomprehensible God, which will always remain mysteries to our finite human minds. Two are are, are foremost, namely the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the, the two natures of the one person of Christ, how God the Son took to himself a true human nature in the Incarnation. So some reject these doctrines because they cannot abide mystery. But we accept these doctrines as true because they are clearly taught in Scripture. And yet mystery always remains. For we cannot fully comprehend our transcendent, eternal, incomprehensible God. The mysteries in our passage tonight are of the first kind. Mysteries at first concealed, but then 
revealed by our great God. We'll consider our passage in these two parts tonight. Mystery concealed and then revealed and then consider some application. And like a good mystery novel, we're taking this chapter in two parts. We'll have a bit of a cliffhanger tonight. You'll have to return for the next part of chapter two to hear Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. So first tonight, the mystery concealed. Chapter two opens by stating the date, the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was out on campaign against Egypt when his father, King Nabopolassar, who was the founder of this Babylonian empire, it was when he was out on campaign that Nabopolassar died. This was the same campaign in which Jerusalem was briefly besieged and Daniel was taken into exile. So this means the second year of his reign was also the second year of Daniel's training. His three years of training were not yet complete. This also explains why Daniel was not summoned when the call went out seeking the interpretation of the dream. He only found out later. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural, indicates he likely had this one dream repeatedly. And this made the significance of it clear to him. While the dream was a revelation from the Lord, the Lord concealed the meaning of the dream from Nebuchadnezzar. And yet the dreams were so troubling to him that he was left unable to sleep. Dream interpretation was a very important practice in ancient Babylon. In fact, it would have been a major part of Daniel's training. If you want to go out and impress your friends, the technical term used still today for dream interpretation is oneromancy. If you look it up, you won't be surprised to find there are still psychics, psychologists, others who practice oneromancy, dream interpretation, today. Sigmund Freud wrote a book called The Interpretation of Dreams, and you can go out and find a a dream interpretation handbook if you want to interpret your own dreams. Of course, in Daniel's day, just as today, this is primarily a man-made superstition based on false religion, much like astrology today. But people took it very seriously. They based important decisions on the interpretation of their dreams. And in fact, it was most likely because Babylonians took dreams so seriously that the Lord chose to use this means to communicate his message to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll recall there was one other dream interpreter in biblical history, Joseph. First, he had his own dreams in Canaan, first one of the sheaves, the second of the sun, moon, and stars. And then once in Egypt, he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, and then later the dreams of Pharaoh himself. And you'll see there are many similarities between Joseph's story and that of Daniel. Verse 2. And the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. In response to the king, he summons, in response to the dream, the king summons all those who would have the ability to give him an interpretation. And we have a number of different specialists here, but they're all summarized under this term. I'll use this term, wise men. 
They're summarized with that term from verse 12 and following. And each of these different specialists would have different ways of interpreting the dream. First, the magicians were those who specialized in dream interpretation. There's actually a work surviving to this day. It's now known as the Assyrian Dream Book, but it would have been uh, likely there in Babylon, uh, likely in Daniel's time. It might have even been used in Daniel's own training. And there's even a surviving record of a dream of King Nabonidus, the father of Belshazzar, he'll turn up later in chapter 5, that involved King Nebuchadnezzar. So a dream book, it provided the tools for the magicians to analyze the symbolic meanings in dreams. Second, we have the enchanters, those who would be summoned to banish or drive away demons and banish nightmares. Perhaps if the dream could not be interpreted, they could banish the dreams so that the king could return to sleep. Third, we have the sorcerers, those who practice sorcery, who cast spells. Needless to say, both male sorcery and female witchcraft are clearly condemned in the Bible. And fourth and finally, Nebuchadnezzar summons the Chaldeans. We spoke of this in previous sermons, but this would refer to the scholarly class, those who would not only study history and literature, but also practice various forms of divination. Divination, uh, it takes many forms, but its essence is performing various rituals to interpret the will of their pagan deities. And dream interpretation really is one subspecialty of the broader uh, class of divination. So in verse 3, the king tells these various wise men why he had summoned them. I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. In other words, tell me the dream. They feel they must not have understood him. So they respond in verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Now here's where the text switches, right there at the beginning of the quotation, from Hebrew to Aramaic, as I discussed earlier, and it continues in Aramaic until the end of chapter 7. And here it's, it seems to be the most simple, the most reasonable request in the world in order to give the interpretation of the dream. The wise men simply need to know the contents of the dream. The king responds to this simple request with the seemingly impossible demand. Verse 5. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Although King Nebuchadnezzar was only in the second year of his reign, and the succession we know from history had gone very smoothly, he had been a crown prince for many years. He had been a successful general before this. And so it's likely King Nebuchadnezzar had quite a bit of experience with these wise men, the various kinds of wise men in the past. He had surely received mixed interpretations and divinations from magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Some of their predictions had come to pass. Surely others had failed. Besides mixed interpretations, he may have also been wary of self-promoting wise men who thought they would give him the interpretation they thought he wanted to hear. So he knew that if he revealed the dream, 
he would receive multiple interpretations, possibly self-serving interpretations from his wise men. How would he know which one would be genuine? And it seems he somehow knew that there was something different about this dream. That this dream was a true revelation in a way like no other dream he had ever had before. And so he decided to impose this unusual restriction, this seemingly impossible demand on his wise men. They needed to tell him not only the interpretation, but the dream itself. Only a man who could do this, tell him both the dream and the interpretation. Only then could he know this interpretation was genuine. And yet we also get a picture here about the character of this king. He is deeply troubled by this dream, so much so that it seems that he senses his very throne is threatened. And he threatens his closest advisors with these excessively cruel punishments. If they fail to meet this impossible demand, not only will they be torn limb from limb, will they be dismembered, but their houses will be laid in ruins. Oh, on the other hand, if they succeed, he promises gifts and rewards and great honor. And yet these threats reveal a deep insecurity in Nebuchadnezzar. And think, though he sits on a throne with great riches, great power, from a a worldly perspective, he has all a man could desire. All it took was this one dream to shake this man to the very core. As Christians, we know God has made us for himself, and we are restless until we rest in him. And so despite being the most powerful man in the world, ruling the greatest empire in the world at that time, all it took was this dream from the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar was no longer sitting so comfortably upon his royal throne. Continuing in the text, verse 7, they answered a second time, and it's just more of the same. Tell us the dream, we will tell you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar responds, my decision is firm, you're not going to change my mind. They go back and forth, the king is unmoved. He says, you're going to try to convince me, I will not be convinced. Perhaps his demand is unreasonable, perhaps it is impossible. But Nebuchadnezzar does not back down. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Here in these verses, the theology of these wise men comes out. And to be sure, this is not a Christian theology, but what do we make of it? On one hand, there's partially, they are partially correct. No one can show it to the king except the gods, and we would correct here, except the one true God. He alone is the revealer of mysteries. On the other hand, they say, on the other hand, they say, the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. And here we say, their pagan deities were man-made idols. 
Perhaps they were even worshiping demons who may have done false miracles. Insofar as these pagan deities did not exist, certainly it's true they did not reside with men if they did not even exist. Yeah, let's also give a Christian response to this statement. Is it true that God does not dwell with flesh, with man? You might think that God does not dwell with man because as Solomon declares when dedicating the temple, even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. And yet, in his omnipresence, he is present everywhere. Then we have God the Son who humbled himself, who took on flesh that he might dwell among us. And then after his ascension, he poured out his spirit on all believers, saying, Surely I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. And so the God who created all things, who transcends all things, is also the God who draws near to us, who is present with us even tonight as we gather to worship him. And so we respond to this pagan theology and we say, yes, God does dwell with man, even within us as in a holy temple, for we are his temple. So what does Nebuchadnezzar think of the wise men's fine pagan theology? Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. He doesn't think much of it, does he? He is furious. This is not a judge soberly pronouncing judgment, but rather a man in a fit of rage, drunk on power, simply flinging destruction upon those who are closest to him. Since a wise man cannot meet his demand, impossible though it might be, he concludes they are frauds and he passes a death sentence on them all. The process of arresting and executing such a large number of people would take time, perhaps a few days. And it's this delay that gives time for Daniel to swoop in and save the day. That brings us to our second point tonight, the mystery revealed. Verse 13, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. As I said earlier, Daniel likely hadn't been summoned initially because he was still in his three years of training. When he receives the word that the death sentence hangs over his own head, how does he respond? Notice first how he does not respond. He does not panic. Rather, he responds, as it says, with prudence and discretion. He knows everything is under control. Though he is under a death sentence, everything is under control because God is in control. Then he forms a plan. He schedules an appointment with the king to tell him the dream's interpretation even before he knows what he will say to him. But he does so in faith, trusting the Lord will give him the words to say in due time. While the definers had tried to buy time with the king and were rebuffed, Daniel was given perhaps only one night 
before his appointment with the king. So Daniel goes to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he asks them to urgently plead with the Lord. They prayed as if their lives depended on it, because literally their lives depended on it. The Lord did not reveal the mystery to Daniel. Soon they would perish along with the rest of Babylon's wise men. So they cast themselves upon the mercy of the Lord. When you know it, our God is a merciful God. He is a God who answers prayer and delivers his people when they call out to him. And that very night, as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were praying, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. You might think Daniel so feared for his life that he immediately ran to the king to deliver what had been revealed to save his own neck. But no, he has far more important business to attend to before he goes to the king. First, he must respond to the king of kings. First, he must return thanks and praise. And so we have verse 19b. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And what follows is an incredible doxology, a beautiful hymn of praise to the Lord. Even though we're only covering the first half of chapter 2 this evening, if we were to consider the entire chapter, we would see that this doxology, this hymn of praise, is the theological center, the climax of the entire chapter. And reading this, you can sense the poetry to Daniel's hymn. ESV very appropriately, appropriately renders this in poetic verse. Daniel here praises God both for who he is and for what he has done. And it's based on two, two things. First, the fact that God has revealed this mystery to him, but also he draws on the content of the dream and the interpretation that which has been revealed. I will save the details of that dream and interpretation for next time, but just a general outline. The dream is about a succession of four powerful earthly kingdoms that will be destroyed by the coming of the everlasting kingdom of God. Let's look at this hymn, verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Daniel begins with eternal praise, praise that goes on forever and ever, the only kind of praise that is fitting for our eternal God. And he highlights two attributes of God, his wisdom and his might. I don't know if you were paying close attention when we were in Job, but those same two attributes were highlighted all throughout Job 12, his wisdom and his might. And then as we move on, those same two attributes are highlighted and elaborated upon in the praises that follow. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now here Daniel is not necessarily referring to the times and seasons of one year, although God is certainly in control of those as well. But I think far more likely Daniel has in mind the grander scale of eras and epochs along with the following statement of removing and establishing kings, these two statements are talking about 
the rising and the falling of kings and kingdoms. He's saying God is in control of the kingdoms of the world. This is a rising and the falling of empires that go along with the the changes from the era of the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire to the Greek Empire to the Roman Empire to finally the coming of the kingdom of God when the Son of Man comes in the flesh. Of course, that's what the dream is all about. And over all this, God is sovereign in his great might and in his wisdom. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 21b, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God has certainly given wisdom to Daniel himself, and yet he is the source of wisdom for each and every one who possesses it. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Continues to poetically describe God's wisdom and knowledge It's both the concealer and the revealer of the greatest of mysteries, of the deep and hidden things. He is the one who is able to shine light in the darkness, for the light dwells with him. This connects with that passage from Job 12. He uncovers the deep out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light, Job 12, 22. And looking forward to the coming of Christ, it makes us think of the prologue to John's gospel where we read, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 4 through 5. And Daniel concludes his hymn, his prayer and hymn with thanksgiving. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. He who was the source has given it to Daniel. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So we come to the conclusion of Daniel's hymn of praise and thanksgiving. Let's now consider what applications we can draw from this passage. First, let us praise the God who conceals mysteries. In this hymn, Daniel speaks of the deep and hidden things of God. He chooses what he reveals, but many things remain hidden. We are called to be content with what God has chosen to reveal and content with the mysteries he has chosen to conceal. And we praise the Lord who alone possesses all wisdom and knowledge and who in his wisdom chooses what is revealed and also what is concealed. Second, praise the God who reveals mysteries. Although we'll get to the details next time, we see that God reveals a great mystery in this chapter. He will lay out the next 650 years of history. And really, that kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ continues until, really, it's the kingdom that goes on forever. So that 650 years, I mean... Take that with a grain of salt. That goes on forever. Only God could reveal such a thing. Only the one who has written history itself could tell us the end before it comes to pass. Praise the Lord, who is sovereign over history and who reveals such mysteries. Let me address here a practical question that may arise. 
Should we expect dreams today to reveal God's will for us? First, let's note there is no command in Scripture to seek dreams or dream interpretation to discern God's will. And if there's no command, we should not do so. Second, we should consider the example of God's word. There are two dream dream interpreters in about 4,000 years of biblical history. The next great event of redemptive historical significance that we are awaiting is the return of Jesus Christ. And he has told us not to calculate the time, that he will come without warning, and we are to expect him at any moment. So based on the examples, the commands, the principles of Scripture, there's no reason for us to look to God, to look or to expect for God to reveal things to us in dreams today. And so we must conclude, it is wondrous that he has given revelation in dreams on several occasions in the past, but there's no reason to believe he will do so today. And I think perhaps just a few words of practical advice may be helpful. I think we should consider dreams as the workings of the human mind and The human mind is a creation of God. It is wonderful. It is mysterious. And yet, even for the Christian, the mind is still corrupted by indwelling sin. And that means even though though you have very little, if any, control over your dreams, if you feel troubled uh, after having a dream, dirty over something you have dreamt, You should bring that to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. Ask cleansing for even unintentional sin connected to your dreams. And there is mystery in our dreams. There is a mystery over why we dream what we dream. And I know one of my practices that I would commend to you is to pray for the Lord to protect you and your family in the night and to protect your dreams Ask him to give you pleasant dreams. I think that's something well worth doing every night before you go to bed. Third, praise the God who answers prayer. Daniel's immediate response to answered prayer is to give thanks and praise. Before he enjoyed the fruits of answered prayer, before he went to the king and was released from this death sentence. Reminds us also of the ten lepers healed by Jesus only one of whom returned to give thanks. How often have your prayers been answered? You've forgotten to return thanks and praise to God. And fourth, praise the God who delivers his people. In the first chapter, we saw a mini salvation story as Daniel and his friends were able to maintain their holiness while in exile. And we have a second chapter and a second salvation story as we see Daniel and his friends delivered from this death sentence. In fact, the first six chapters of Daniel, five of them are salvation stories. I think the theme is quite clear. Even in exile, even while under this covenant curse, God continues to rescue his people. He has disciplined them, and that severely, but he has not abandoned them. In, these, in this chapter, in these chapters, he continues to save their lives in this world. But more importantly, these men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, are men who knew and trusted their Savior. 
At this point in redemptive history, their Savior was still largely shrouded in mystery. They did not know his name, Jesus Christ. They only knew him as the promised one, the Messiah, the son of David, the one who was to come. And yet in the fiery furnace, Daniel's friends would see the pre-incarnate Christ walking with them, protecting them from the flames. In his vision in chapter 7, Daniel would see one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. But their faith was in Jesus Christ, though they knew not his name. They trusted him for their eternal salvation. Who are you trusting today as your Savior? Now that Christ has come, the mystery has been revealed, the veil has been pulled back, and I am proclaiming to you today, trust in Christ and him alone that you might be saved. And praise God. Praise the God who conceals, the God who reveals mystery, the God who answers prayer, who delivers his people now and forever. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, you who have created all things, who have set history in motion, and who are sovereign over all things, you who know the end from the beginning, and who both conceal and reveal, we thank you for this incredible picture of your working, revealing great mysteries. Lord, we thank you for also this little picture and this little window into one event of salvation. We thank you even more for the salvation that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you draw us closer to our Savior, deepen our trust in him, that great mystery that is revealed in his coming, that we might know him, that we might love him, and that we might give you all the thanks, praise, and honor. For our great Savior, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.